Natasha Furrows and today we're going to be hearing three of the articles from this week's magazine. We've got Douglas Murray on Hispanic Conservatives in US politics, Katia Hoyer on East Germany and Lara Prendergast on why sex parties have become an open secret. First up, Douglas Murray. If you had to take a guess on which American political party would produce the first Mexican-born congresswoman, which one would it be? The Democrats or the party of Donald Trump? As though to prove that nothing in American politics today is predictable, it is indeed the latter. Two weeks ago, Myra Flores flipped a Democrat-friendly Texas congressional seat in a special election and became both the first Republican Latina representative from the state of Texas and the first Mexican-born member of the House. She even thanked Trump for her victory. Everything about her win bucks the expectations of the country that now exist outside its borders. For instance, consider the campaign against her. For the foreign press, the Democrat Party is presumed to be the party of anti-racism, right? The party that wouldn't fall into any nativist traps and start talking about us and them. Well, here is what Flores' Democrat opponent in the upcoming November elections said about her last week. In an interview, Vincente Gonzalez attacked Flores for being a pawn of the Republican Party. I wasn't born in Mexico, he said. I was born in South Texas, the son of a Korean War veteran. I didn't come here through chain migration. I didn't come through asylum or amnesty or whatever, he continued. The message from Gonzalez is clear. He is the real American. Flores, by contrast, is a foreign interloper, one of these terrible migrants we hear so much about. It is a curious line of attack for a Democrat to take, not least under a government which is allowing almost a quarter of a million illegal migrants to cross the southern border every month. What exactly is the Democrats thinking here. Whatever it is, Flores and a new generation of Republican politicians like her keep showing up the deepest presumptions of the Democrat Party. Because over recent decades, the American left have, like their counterparts in the UK, taken it for granted that migrants would be theirs by right. They have taken it as read that when people come to America, they will listen to the closed borders rhetoric of Trump and other Republicans versus the open borders rhetoric of the Democrat Party and find their natural political home amid the latter. But again, as in Britain, no such presumption can be made. First, because there is considerable anger among those who made it to America through a legal route when they see millions of people attempting to enter the country each year through illegal routes. Anybody who has gone through the labyrinthine, exhausting, often demoralising process of trying to legalise in the United States cannot but have a sense of injustice 
that there are people who are able to skip the queue and come into the country illegally. What is more, far more than in the UK, there is a sense that if you have made it to the country legally, then you are absolutely in and one of the family. Without needing to hate them or look down on them, the people who break into the country break a part of that familial pact. And then there is the fact that many immigrants in the US are inherently conservative in at least some of their fiscal and social habits. For example, many migrants from Central and South America are, like Flores, highly family-orientated. This was highlighted this week when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appeared on stage with Flores and her young family at Flores' swearing-in ceremony. The sharp-elbowed Pelosi was caught by the cameras literally elbowing Flores' young daughter aside in order to place herself more centrally in the picture. Flores Jr. held her ground, and her mother praised her little queen for doing so. I saw it afterwards, and yes, I was very disappointed and very disgusted by it. No child should be pushed aside for a photo she said. The other thing that many migrants to America also have is a strong work ethic, motivated by a sense that if you work hard in America, you can still get ahead. The Democrat Party tells ethnic minorities that however hard they work, they will be held back by systemic racism and other bogeymen. Whether or not this is the case with black Americans, and there is much to say about that, there is no reason why it should be the case for Hispanic Americans and others. Indeed, Hispanic Americans already outperform black Americans and are steadily catching up with white Americans in average household income. This is starting to show at the polls. In 2004, Hispanic Americans accounted for around 8% of the vote. In 2050, they are projected to make up 29%. So, the future of American politics will be very much decided by this core demographic. Again, outside of America, there is a simplistic presumption that the rhetoric of Trump about some Mexicans must make all Hispanics regard the Republican Party as their opponent. But the polls simply don't back that up. In 2016, Trump won 29% of the Hispanic vote. In 2020, he won 32%. Trump grew the Republicans' share of the black vote in the same way. In fact, the only racial group among whom Trump's popularity declined between 2016 and 2020 was the white male vote, a polling data point that positively reeks of the truth. Whoever their candidate, if the Republican Party keeps growing its share of the Hispanic vote, then it could upend one of the biggest presumptions in American politics. Another Republican representative, Maria Salazar, made this point herself in a recent interview. Mexicans, Cubans and others should obviously be welcomed into the Republican Party, she said, because these people have the same values as those entrenched in the Republican Party. It is true, for, 
as the Democrats stampeded to the left with progressive politics, identity politics, and more, they began to irritate some of the most basic beliefs of people they took to be their base. Whatever her own success or her own record, Flores is an expression of a deeper trend. The Democrats took a lot for granted. They shouldn't be surprised if the people they took for granted now start to elbow them off the stage in turn. That was Douglas Murray. Next, we have Katja Hoyer. Back to the wall. East Germans find it hard to see Russia as the enemy. Not all of Germany is against Vladimir Putin. Sarah Wagenknecht, a left party MP, recently defended him, saying he is not the mad Russian nationalist of caricature and sending weapons to Ukraine was a US-driven policy, which played a role in provoking his invasion. Her views are quite common in East Germany, and not only among the left. The far-right party, Alternative for Germany, which has most of its support in the East, opposes sanctions and providing weapons. A recent opinion poll asked whether Berlin should be tough on Russia. Half of West Germans agree, but just a third of East Germans do. Some 58% of East Germans want Berlin to take an approach that doesn't provoke Russia. Only 40% of West Germans agree. East Germany's sympathy has nothing to do with nostalgia for the days of Moscow rule. Three decades have passed since reunification in 1990, and surveys repeatedly show most former citizens of the German Democratic Republic fear their lives have changed for the better. But Germany spent the Cold War years divided affiliated to radically different military superpowers. So perhaps it's not surprising that West Germany, which joined NATO in 1955 and became its bulwark in Europe, is now quicker to feel affiliation with this Western alliance than us in East Germany, which has learned to fear it. What explains East Germany's different attitude towards Russia than that of the Poles or the Baltic states? Many Eastern European nations fought for centuries to defend their nationhood against Russia, while Germany has often stood by or even colluded as it sought to dominate its neighbours. So East Germans don't share the same sense of existential threat. And while the Stasi years did leave deep psychological marks on East Germans, it didn't lead to a long-lasting reappraisal of Russia's role in Europe. In their view, the Soviets liberated them from Nazism. Injustice had been done to Russia by Germany, and not the other way round. Poland rightly took a very different view, having fought German and Russian brutality. Unlike Eastern European states, the GDR was also never subject to Russification. It kept German colours on its flag, German uniforms on its army, and German history in its textbooks. Many East Germans enjoyed consuming Russian culture alongside their own. They read Russian literature, learned the language, and travelled to the Soviet Union to study. Throughout the Cold War, Russians remained faceless enemies to the West, whilst East Germans built relationships with them. Today, they find it hard to see them as the enemy. In West Germany, there also exists an anti-NATO sentiment. In February, the MP Seven Dagdalen said Ukraine's behaviour was akin to a declaration of war on Russia and a result of US and NATO warmongering. Veteran women's activist Elise Schwarzer claimed Putin was given a motive to act. Chancellor Olaf Scholz once held anti-NATO views too, 
1982, when he was the deputy leader of the Young Socialists, he argued the arms race was fueled by an aggressive imperialist NATO strategy. Now he's calling for 100 billion euros to be added to defence spending and wants to use the cash to buy American F-35s. Schultz may never fully understand the way former GDR citizens see the world, but he should try. East Germans make up 16 million of Germany's 80 million population, and it's their region that will take the biggest economic hit from economic sanctions against Russia. The Drushbar pipeline, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, all run to East Germany, providing thousands of jobs. Cutting economic ties with Russia is right and necessary, but the prospect also causes real anxiety for East Germans. Most East Germans experienced immense economic, social and ideological upheaval when the Soviet Union collapsed, and the fallout is still visible today. If Schultz can overcome his own youthful scepticism towards NATO, he should look for ways to bring his Eastern compatriots along. Germany is still working out how to move on from its troubled 20th century history, as one nation and as part of the West. That was Katia Hoyer. And finally, Lara Prendergast. You know you're getting old when your friends start going to sex parties. In our 20s, there were parties, and sometimes people would have sex with them. But they were never known as sex parties. Now we are firmly in our 30s, the phrase sex party is creeping into everyday conversations alongside mortgage rates, nursery options and the cost of living. At a country wedding recently, I caught up with an old acquaintance. While we ate our lemon possets, I bored on about motherhood and she bored on about sex parties. I can't repeat what she divulged, but the conversation felt strangely familiar. It concerned racy outfits and group sex. The surprising thing about this was that it wasn't surprising at all. Home counties girls often talk about attending formal-sounding threesomes, foursomes or even moresomes by way of a hobby. I should say I have never been to one of these parties, nor have I been invited to one, so I write from a position of relative ignorance. However, I do know that the guest lists are exclusive and attendees are often vetted to make sure they are attractive enough. I'm up to speed on the safeguarding measures and the consent forms, which sound like a real shag to fill out. These parties are meant to be a safe space for extreme behaviour. The names of the parties are lodged in my mind. Killing Kittens, Torture Garden, Club Verboten, Crossbreed, Skirt Club. I've seen pals head off dressed in tight, black, squeaky outfits, trying not to complain about how uncomfortable they are. Some of the dress codes are stricter than Royal Ascot. The websites remind guests of the rules. No sexy party dresses that could be worn to any nightclub. No cotton underwear. No military insignia. You can't just gesture to a fetish look, for heaven's sake. It's latex, leather, metal and lace. I've heard of colleagues from the civil service bumping into each other dressed in full PVC. A friendship group makes for a poor study sample, but according to the newspapers, these parties are popular across my generation. Millennial sex parties are happening everywhere in London, leading to a new sexual revolution, says the Evening Standard. Millennials haven't stopped having sex, they're just doing it in a latex skirt while strapped into a harness. The Mail on Sunday calls 2022 the summer of sex parties, while the 32-year-old blogger Zoella 
formerly known for selling foam sweet foam bubble bath to tweens, recently ran a piece on her website written by two women called Abby and Emma about what it's really like to attend a sex party IRL. The biggest myth it perpetuated is that the sex party community is closed-lipped and hush-hush. As the article points out, before going into a long-winded and breathless description of what it's like to be watched having sex, a complete buzz apparently, sex parties aren't just for the sex mad, they are for lawyers, teachers, doctors, financial advisors and accountants. The impression I get though, is that these parties are heavily populated by these professions and there is no amerta. It's so lame and vanilla, says a gay pal, himself a seasoned sex partier and a professional type too. When I ask his thoughts on the matter, aware that these sorts of activities aren't exactly news in the gay community. Big deal, you shagged someone while someone else watched. Having a gangbang doesn't make you interesting. And why does it always have to be so organised and cautious too? It's never very carnal, he says. Organised and cautious, rather than carnal, is how I describe the people I know who go to these parties, which may explain why the rules and regulations are such a turn-on. It may also explain why some of the parties offer tea and biscuits. By day, many of us are waitrose women, conservative in all sorts of ways, even if we choose not to admit it to ourselves. And no matter how we spend our weekends, whether it be potty training a toddler or spanking a barrister in a gimp mask, we're putting a hot wash on come Monday morning. Obviously, these commercially driven parties are marketed as a great liberation for women. Skirt Club adopts a Sheryl Sandberg-esque line. We know that confidence in the bedroom leans to confidence in the boardroom. Lean in, girls. What they should really say is that these events offer a titillating, slightly shocking answer to that most mundane and often uncomfortable question. So, what's new in your life? You could answer, as Club Verboten suggests, that you are exploring how we engage with each other, driven by our sexualities at a range of timbers, fluidities and endurances, with ethoses and processes that amplify the tangible and intangible qualities of united ejaculations. No wonder civil servants feel comfortable at these bashes. The bureaucraties flows fluently. This week, it was announced that the Treasury has taken a stake in Killing Kittens, which bills itself as a sex tech firm. It's all thanks to a scheme set up by Eat Out to Help Out Rishi Sunak during the pandemic to offer loans to innovative businesses. Even the government is tying itself up in long-term bondage. Gordon Brown might have had boom and bust. It turns out that I've got bums and busts, said Sunak. Sex parties are an intriguing subject up to a point, and certainly more so than many of the other humdrummeries that preoccupy my generation, although have you seen the cost of petrol recently? And yes, after Covid, we could all do with a few thrills, which is one of the explanations offered for the rise of the millennial sex party. But if every generation thinks it invented sex, millennials are making up for lost time. So much so, that we've already managed to turn sex parties into a tedious cliché, in much the same way as we sullied the name of the blameless avocado. The boomer swingers who came before us must find it all very amusing, as they look out fondly at their pampas grass. That was Lara Prendergast. If you enjoyed it, please pick up a copy of this week's magazine to read great articles like these three. I'm Natasha Faroz, and do listen again next week.